From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department will institute what it calls Health Protection Condition Bravo Plus on the Pentagon Reservation at 5 a.m. Thanksgiving Day. Chief Management Officer Lisa Hirschman writes the status calls for a goal of no more than 40% of employees working on site with the rest teleworking. Hirschman's memo says the new status limits meetings at the Pentagon and the Mark Center to 25 people. The Defense Department paid out almost $5 billion in improper payments to its own civilian employees last year, according to the department's new financial statement. Federal News Network reports the, uh, that auditors can't say whether most of the payments are overpayments or underpayments. The overall improper payments rate went up to 1.73% of the department's total spending. That's up from 1.43% in the 2019 audit. More on this in a moment. The Coast Guard's only operational heavy icebreaker will go to the Arctic this winter instead of supporting Antarctic scientific missions. The captain of the Cutter Polar Star, Captain Williams Wychera, says the mission of the deployment will be, quote, to protect sovereignty and strengthen the rules-based order in the Arctic. USNI News reports it's the first time the Polar Star hasn't been in the Antarctic in the winter in five decades. That improper payments total the department paid out last year isn't the only news that looks like bad news on the surface from the department's audit. The top financial manager in the department, Thomas Harker, says it will take the Pentagon until 2027 to get a clean opinion. Tina Jonas is senior advisor in the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She's former Undersecretary of Defense Comptroller. Tina, welcome back. It's good to see you again. I recall as uh, some of the news reports around this sounded like folks' uh, hair was catching fire, this timeline for a 2027 potential clean audit is something that we've been talking about for quite a while now, isn't it? Well, it has indeed been a long time. And I think, you know, the initial audit that was agreed to was in 2017. So that was a good first step. But there was a lot of work that was done prior to that to try to get things moving. And I think uh, there's been incremental progress, but clearly more needs to be done. We have three of these in a row now. Are, are, what do you think of the progress that we've seen? Is it sufficient to get to that 2027 trajectory or are we flattening out, is it your sense, over the last couple of years? Well, I think it looks like they're gonna add DISA as another of the organizations that will add to the clean uh, opinion. But it, it just seems that more needs to be done and they need to accelerate a lot of the work that has happened. Um, none of the services have yet to uh, receive a clean opinion and that indicates additional commitment is needed. What do you think, based on reading what we got out of the department last week, what do you think are the biggest areas for improvement and are those areas for improvement that you think could happen faster or is this just such a tough job that it will take time to dig into the harder issues as the department maybe in the first three took care of some of the low-hanging fruit? It's a big job. There is no question about it. And again, you know, you've got uh, about six agencies plus one 
now that have done the work that is necessary. But when you look at the larger jobs of the services, I know that the Marine Corps has made some significant progress. They have showed a, a commitment to this over the years, and um, they're hoping each year to get over the line. But you've got the Navy, the Air Force, and the Army. Uh, they've got property, plant, and equipment. Uh, they've got inventories. These are massive. In, it, in addition, Francis, you have the remediation to the things that has already have already been identified of about a billion dollars. So it's always a matter for the department of where they put their focus. And um, I continue to believe, and others do, that accountability in this area will add to their overall mission effectiveness. But again, we've got a new administration coming in. It will have to fall to them to decide where they want to focus their efforts. I, uh, you, you mentioned DISA's working capital fund, and I noted that uh, Mr. Harker said the DISA opinion will be next month. Is the idea of an annual audit maybe more fluid than I thought it was when this came out, was presented as the third annual opinion, and my, or, or third annual audit, and it's, uh, my impression of that was, well, it's done. Sounds like it's not done, so maybe it's more fluid than, than people think? There may be a few last minute items that they're working through. This is probably common, but of course, COVID has also thrown a wrench into a lot of the work that's that's happening. Unfortunately, it's impacting the mission and clearly this activity. And that's where I wanted to finish is the potential COVID effect on this. Uh, I note that uh, the department went to 600, the auditors went to 600 locations last year we're only able to go to 100 this year because of COVID-19. What difference does that make as far as collecting the hard data in your view, Tina? Well, for example, on floor checks, you can't do a physical floor check uh, very easily. And this is something that's affecting companies across the board, not just the Department of Defense, but I think you know, the, the industry it, itself is trying to learn how to work through this, they are, but but clearly that physical counting, inventory checks, et cetera, those are critical things to be able to do. So obviously it's slowed it down. Is that a potential place then for gains next year because of possibilities that different parts of the branches maybe have made progress over the past? At that point, it will be two years, uh, but they just weren't able to be verified this year. Yeah, that's a clear area that they would want to focus, I believe. But again, it, it depends on the commitment of the incoming team of where they want to put their effort. And uh, But again, continued work is really important. Accountability is a critical area of mission. What will you watch moving forward? What will you watch maybe in that uh, potential opinion from DISA in December or in the activity that the new administration takes on in setting up uh, the USD Comptroller Office or any of that, Tina? Well, the first thing is some statements. Usually that'll come in the form of testimony, uh, likely, likely before the Congress and the confirmation hearings and a commitment which has been asked for by, you know, for years from the Congress out of uh, officials in the department. And they want to hear, look, we've got a clear commitment to getting this done. And I think that is the first step it's the tone at the top that says this is important not only for accountability, but really to have a more effective and efficient 
military, period. Tina Jonas, thank you very much as always. I appreciate it. Thank you, Francis. Up next, a new report card for military strength. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the force is passing, but just barely. You'll learn why next on WJLA 24-7 News. A new report card for military strength says the United States can meet the demands of defending national interests, but only barely. The Heritage Foundation's index of U.S. military strength ranks three branches as marginal, another trending toward weak. Lieutenant Colonel Dakota Wood, U.S. Marine Corps, retired as Senior Research Fellow for Defense Programs at the Heritage Foundation. He's editor of the index. Dakota, thank you very much for joining me. Welcome back to the program. You and your colleagues write in this work, the index is not an assessment of what might be, but it's how well or poorly conditions, countries, and the U.S. military have evolved during the assessed year. Why is that important to understand as we look at the individual components of this? Yeah, crucial. Well, you know, you're aware that in the D.C. area, a lot is uh, written and talked about direct energy, unmanned systems and robotics, artificial intelligence, uh, a lot of very exotic weapons that might be coming down the pike in the next 10 years. But if we had to go to the South China Sea or ride to the defense of, our, of the NATO members in the Baltic Sea, our Baltic states, uh, you know, we're not going to use the military that might be 10 years from now. So the index looks at the military we currently have. It's a report card back to the American people whose uh, taxpayer monies are used to fund the military and uh, our expectations for what today's military can do to protect uh, national security and economic interests. So it's a really important thing to understand that you've just pointed out that uh, yes, invest in the future, but uh, we really have to rely on the military we have today for today's problems. It struck me as I read through this, it's the, you're writing about the military that you see that we have, not the military that you see that we wish that we had. You write, the Army is marginal, is the grade that you assign to the current condition of the United States Army. Has the big six list of priorities overall, do you think, been a positive, a negative, or a neutral for the posture of the Army? Well, I think they're important because what they do is represent the focus of the Army on what it thinks it needs to have to prevail in combat against a peer competitor. So we're not talking about going against terror groups that don't have navies and air forces and armor forces and those sorts of things. If you had, again, had to go to someplace like the Middle East and do battle with Iran or uh, NATO's Northern flank or something like that, you really have to get serious about the types of programs and capabilities that you wanna fund. So when we talk about marginal, it has nothing to do with the goodness of the individual soldier, sailor, airman, or marine. We've got great people. We're saying that as a total force, the size of the Army, is the Army big enough to do the things that we would want it to do in more than one theater against more than one competitor? Is its equipment old uh, and antiquated, or is it new and really up to the task? So the big six programs you know, that you mentioned uh, is definitely the right way to go. It shows that the Army is focused. And we want to see the same kind of focus in the other services. You write, uh, the Navy's overall score remains marginal in the 2021 index, but is trending toward weak in capability and readiness remains weak in capacity. Where is it weak in capacity, Dakota? 
Well, if you think about Cold War days, and I know it's in the history books for so many people 30 years ago, but it was a global stage, and you had to deal with a global competitor in the Soviet Union. We had a Navy that was 550 ships. Today, the current U.S. Navy is fewer than 300. Are the current ships better than a 1970s counterpart? Absolutely, but a ship can only be in one place at one time. So of those 300 ships that we have, a third of them are ready on any given day, that's 100. About 60 of those are dedicated to the Indo-Pacific or the Western Pacific region. And that 60 ship capability is going up against 350 ships of the People's Liberation Army Navy, the Chinese Navy. So it's dramatically under strength in terms of the capacity to the number of ships that it has. More than half of those ships that we currently have are greater than 20 years old. And a lot of those are in the key you know, larger surface combatant sorts of classes. They've got huge bills coming down the pike with new aircraft carriers, a new ballistic missile submarine, new fast attack boats, uh, the need for a frigate, which we don't have anymore. So there's a lot of modernization that needs to occur, and it's just going to be a lot of money and take a lot of time. I don't mean to call, uh, to uh, bring short shrift to the, our friends in the Air Force. You write uh, all... Uh, Scores marginal in all three measures, but is trending upward in capability and capacity. But I want to move to your former force, where you write, the score for the core's capacity was raised to marginal from weak, but only because the index has changed the threshold. What, what do uh, General Berger's uh, updates, uh, proposals for modernization in the Marine Corps propose to you? Right, so I think where the Marine Corps is going under General Berger is absolutely the right direction. If you can figure out how to conduct distributed operations with a lower signature. You're not broadcasting as much, your physical footprint is smaller with smaller units. If you can do that against a competitor like China, that capability can be used anywhere else in the world. I mean, it, it really is uh, the direction the Marine Corps needs to go. The reason we changed the threshold for capacity in particular is that in a two-war capacity force, you know, if I've got to do something with China, does it mean that I strip out everything else I have in the Middle East and Europe, which means that interests there and allies there are now uncovered? We think that's a dangerous situation to be in. So our metric has to do with a military force big enough to do more than one thing at a time. The current military can only do one major conflict and it would take everything we've got. So for the Marine Corps to have a two-war capacity, they really need 36 infantry battalions, and then the air power and logistics that go along with that. The Marine Corps says, we're never doing that. We're basically a one war force. And so we have just accepted that argument for the Marine Corps as a service. Even with that, they still need to be bigger than they currently are. So when I was in, we had 27 battalions, that dropped to 24 and then down to 21 under the Budget Control Act cuts. They regained some strength by moving things around to 24. But General Berger says, budgets aren't going to get any bigger, so I'm going to have to make my adaptations, my changes within the existing top line. And he's going to sacrifice some capacity, dropping back down to 21 battalions and the equivalent of various types of forces in order to free up the money to do the experimentation and develop that he thinks needs to be done. So it's a tough call. In this situation, it's the right call, but we still have to deal with the reality of the world and we believe that the Marine Corps is simply too small for the types of warfare that we envision in the future. Dakota Wood, for the sake of completion, Space Force not assessed. Nuclear capabilities as marginals toward, uh, trending towards strong. We're out of time. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you.
Up next, the new Congress and defense legislation. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's ahead for money and policy? Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. The 2020 election brings a new president and some changes in the Senate Armed Services Committee. Both of those can have big impacts potentially on the National Defense Authorization Act now and for years to come. Roger Zakheim's director of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library Foundation and Institute. Roger, welcome back. As I first started to think about this conversation, I thought, well, NDA is pretty much baked for this year, but uh, and and the election won't impact those people who are going to be in that room. I'm probably thinking about it wrong on second blush, aren't I? Well, I think the election outcome, without question, you know, will make an impact. You're already seeing some jockeying on the part of members of Congress. But at the end of the day, um, this Congress goes sine die. That's the fancy language for meaning it, it ends uh, this year. And the work of the National Defense Authorization Act and the Armed Services Committee really needs to be finished then. Uh, so regardless of the election outcome, uh, they have to get their work done this year. It will impact, though, I imagine, the way that members think about what has to be in this year's bill, what doesn't have to be in this year's bill. The thing that I'm thinking about primarily is the veto threat from President Trump for the time that he remains president on the Confederate base names. That is something that many members support being in the bill, but I wonder if that conversation will be impacted by the idea that with a Biden administration that's likely to be friendly to that idea, it may not have to be in at this exact moment. That's the kind of thing that I'm thinking about as far as trying to game out the future. Well, you've captured it well, and the, the base naming is the issue of the moment, and it remains to be seen uh, whether or not the provisions that were included in the Senate bill or the House bill, either one of those, uh, remains in the bill. The president, of course, has issued the veto threat. Um, and so now uh, the managers of the bill, namely the chairs and the ranking members, have to decide whether they want to keep some of that language in there uh, and play a game of chicken with the president over his veto threat, or do they want to take out that language to ensure safe passage of that bill, which has passed and been enacted for you know 60 years straight. That's the dynamic right now. Um, a lot of politics involved. Uh, a lot of policy there. What's unique is that both chambers actually have language in this bill addressing this issue. So it would be unusual to remove that language um, and uh, kind of clear the way to avoid the veto threat because the rules of the conference are is that if, if language is in both bills, you really can't remove uh, both sets of language. I want you to take me back to the uh, staff rooms at the uh, House Armed Services Committee, Roger. The, the election will impact the HASC with the size of the, the makeup of each caucus. How does that change the makeup of the committee? How does that change the staff ratios of the assignments, those kinds of things? And does that difference wind up manifesting itself in the production of next year's NDAA and the year after that one? Yeah, it's a good question. It's really getting inside the beltway, inside the Capitol with that one. 
Um, but at the end of the day, the ratio of Republicans and Democrats on the Armed Services Committee uh, usually is reflective of the uh, number of Republicans and Democrats uh, in each chamber. So in the House of Representatives, where you've seen Republicans make some gains, there may be um, uh, additional Republicans on the Armed Services Committee. But of course, Democrats were remain in the majority. Uh, Adam Smith will continue to serve as chairman. So you'll get perhaps some shifting in the numbers there, but it won't be um, a huge number. But every number is consequential given how uh, limited, right, and how narrow uh, the majority is in the House side. Uh, and the Senate, you know, we'll see if it remains a Republican majority. Uh, if it does, you're really not going to see a meaningful difference in terms of the composition of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Less than a minute left. You know well the two uh, people who are, are talked about as nominees to become the next Secretary of Defense, Michelle Flournoy and Jay Johnson. What do you know of each, Roger? Yeah, I mean, they're both uh, fine people, um, experienced public servants. Of course, Jay has served at a cabinet-level position uh, in the Department of Homeland Security, but he has great experience in the Department of Defense. Uh, he was general counsel when I served as general counsel in the House Armed Services Committee. And of course, Michelle Flournoy has really been a leader in defense policy circles uh, for, for decades now. Um, and, you know, uh, from my uh, purview, there are differences in, in policy, but both are experienced uh, and capable leaders, and I think uh, they'll be welcomed by the Pentagon bureaucracy. Roger Zakheim, thank you very much for joining me. It's great to have you back. Thank you. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.